Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am once again looking forward to another uh, discussion I get to have with uh, Ace Collins, who is not only a great friend of Faith Radio, but he is a guy who has created a number of uh, Christmas-related books about the great traditions of Christmas and the uh, the stories behind the best love songs of Christmas. And if you ever pull out your Christmas decorations and you put things on coffee tables or on mantles, his book would be a great item to have as part of your Christmas uh, swag that you have out because there's a story behind every one of the great traditions and songs, and you can not only create a very interesting conversation with someone around the table, but you can also use it as a door to open it to a spiritual conversation. So I'm a big fan, and uh, I've got his a uh, couple of his books in my collection that come out at Christmas time, and I'm always glad to have Ace on. Uh, you can learn more about him at acecollins.com. He's authored over 100 books. I have no idea what he does in his spare time. Ace, what what do you do in your spare time? I play a lot of guitar. Okay. Uh, every Sunday night, uh, there. Well, except for over the holidays, there's between 50 and 70 college kids eating at my house. That's fantastic. Uh, having fun. So. Uh, go to a lot of college sports life. So, I mean, you know, I, I find ways to fit other things in. So, mm. I mean, work out a lot. So, I mean, yeah, I'm busy, but it's, it's a good busy. Yeah. So, when I was in grade school, I had an opportunity at uh, a midnight service to sing a solo. And there was a little orchestra there that night. And I was very well rehearsed. But boy, when the time came, I kind of froze really badly. And the, and the choir director at the time had realized that I was kind of giving him the blank look. And he very deftly uh, had the orchestra play the intro one more time. And he he looked at me. Boy, I don't even know if I can spit this one out. Yeah. And he mouthed to me, you can do it. Mm-hmm. So having, yeah. having said that, I want to lead into the discussion on candy canes. Yeah. Candy canes are really an interesting thing because they originated as with a children's choir. Um, you know, let's go back a few hundred years to Cologne, Germany. And we think of we think of having problems with ch- keeping children quiet in church as kind of a modern phenomenon. Most of us remember as kids probably being in church and and suddenly having one of our parents get enough of us in church and lead us out to the uh, outside to the foyer or to outside the church to have a good talking to. Uh, but back in Cologne, Germany, there was a choir director who was having all kinds of problems. He was catching it from the heads of the church. He was catching it from parents because his choir, when they finished, would start passing notes to each other and start <laughs> you know, kind of elbowing each other's and whispering each other's ears and kind of disrupting the service. And you he mean was acting like kids? Yeah, 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 just acting like kids. And yeah. he was trying to figure out a way to stop that. And he realized if he gave them a treat like candy, that it, you know, slow dissolving candy, it would keep them quiet, but everybody would frown on it because, well, you know, he's he's bribing them. 
to keep them quiet. You know, even in the 1600s, you know, people frowned on things like that. So he went to a local candy maker. He looked at various candies and he saw a white stick. And he asked, can you form that into a, a kind of a staff looking thing, like a shepherd would carry? And the guy said, sure. He ordered enough of them and then told the kids, okay, you sing your solo, you do a great job, and then you can lick your sticks during the service. Mm-hmm. And the way he justified it was he he said that these canes, these <laughs> white candy canes, were actually represented the the staff of the of the of the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Mm-hmm. He also said they also represented the staffs of the shepherds who went to see Jesus on Christmas. And so the church couldn't get mad because he was teaching a lesson and, and giving him a symbol for this lesson. And it worked. It kept everybody quiet. Well, that kind of tied candy canes in a way to Christmas in Germany. And it slowly spread across uh, Europe and eventually to the United States. Now, once again, I'm talking about a white candy cane. Um, back when Cromwell actually outlawed Christmas in Great Britain, and that's another story altogether, people would actually kind of celebrate Christmas by handing candy canes to each other as a way of saying Merry Christmas, because you weren't supposed to say it out loud. And actually, they said Happy Christmas but in Great Britain, but you weren't supposed to say it out loud. Christmas was to be ignored. Shops were to be open on Christmas Day. The government was to function on Christmas Day. Um So the candy cane in that period of time became a way of kind of silent rebellion in a way. And in the United States, though, candy cane, and if you look at early Christmas cards, you'll see white candy canes on early Christmas cards. And then uh, a man uh, in Indiana and simultaneously, actually, another man in the South in Georgia developed a way to mechanically paint stripes on candy. And they suddenly... The man in Indiana painted three red stripes all the way around candy canes. He did that because his his brother was a clergyman, and he he explain he used that candy cane to explain scripture. The stripes represent the blood of Christ. The three stripes represent the Trinity. Uh, the white represents the purity of Christ. And he actually put that on the tags of the candy he sold, and it spread across the United States. And suddenly. In the U.S. and then later in Great Britain and across Europe, candy canes became red with three stripes on them. Um, In the United States, candy canes were hung on trees. And you can even listen to classic radio from the 40s and 50s, like comedy shows like The Great Gildersleeve. There are episodes on Christmas, and the kids were begging to get the candy cane before Christmas, but you weren't allowed to take the candy cane down until Christmas Day. And that that was one of your treats you got on Christmas Day. But it was always tied back to that story of the Trinity and tried back to that story of the white representing the purity of Christ, just like was taught years and years, well, centuries ago in Cologne, Germany. By the way, another bit of trivia for those of you who are a bit older and you remember animal crackers and animal crackers always had that string on them. Yeah. Well, that string was not so you can carry it around like a bag or a suitcase. That string was to hang over your Christmas tree as a Christmas decoration. And then on Christmas morning, the kids who had who had those boxes hanging there as they unwrapped their presents and played with them could also eat their eat their animal crackers. <laughs> that, is, that is such a great piece of trivia, Ace Collins. I did not know that. I've got one. I've actually, I actually keep one of those. It's got an empty box now and hang it on one of my trees in my house every year to uh, remind me of that tradition. The tree I have in my office right now is all 
1945 tree is what I call it because it would have been the tree that my grandfather would have come home to in World War II. It's decorated with nothing but pre-1945 ornaments, real tinsel from the 1940s, the old-fashioned big lights. They're new lights, so they don't burn hot. And then on top of that, it has Christmas cards from, from World War II in the midst of it. So my grandfather would have seen all that. Underneath the tree, I have presents that are fake presents, but they're wrapped in the wrapping paper mm. that was popular in World War II. But also on this tree, I have candy canes hung like they would have had during the 1930s and 40s. Uh, do you give tours of your house? Because I'm thinking I'm going to start a little business. I'm, I'm going to charge, a, and I'll give you a small percentage. And I'm just well, I'm just we, seeing we, numbers right now. We have a lot of people that come and, and look at the various trees because we have a bunch of themed trees. And and my 1957 Whirlitzer jukebox has 200 Christmas songs on it right oh, now. So fantastic. There are 45 records, and so they love to play the records and pick out their favorites and things. Mm-hmm. Ace Collins is my guest. If you've got a question about... Uh, one of your favorite uh, songs from Christmas, or maybe you have an interest in how a tradition came to be regarding Christmas, you can text it over to 877-933-2484. And I'm pretty sure Ace will know how the tra- the tradition and the stories behind uh, any uh, song or any Christmas tradition. Let's just jump from a tradition to a song uh, the song "God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen," that lovely song. I think it's a great Christmas song. Would you explain what that means? Yeah, that that's actually the reason I started writing these books. As a kid, I was was kind of mystified by why would God want happy people to sleep? Um, <laughs> exactly. If you think about it. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, God rest. Okay, you know, you're happy now. Let's go to sleep. I mean, you know, to me as a kid, it sounded like a plot from adults to get pe- kids to go to bed earlier. Yeah. Um, when I actually did some research on it, and part of this research came from uh, uh, some of Billy Graham's research, but a lot of it came from the Library of Congress, and I was going through old books from Great Britain. I found out that six, seven, eight hundred years ago in Great Britain, the word Mary had several different meanings. And it's probably the reason the, the British largely say Happy Christmas, though they've seen enough of our movies now that their Merry Christmas is becoming more prevalent in Great Britain, but it's been a tradition to always say Happy Christmas. And the reason is Mary had several different meanings uh, six, seven, eight hundred years ago. It meant happy, sure, uh, but it also meant powerful and it meant mighty. So Robin Hood and his mighty men in the force. And you may think, well, why? how could happy and mighty be the same thing? Well, remember, if you were a if you were a common person back then, a peasant, as they called them, life was tough. You didn't live very long. You didn't have very much. You worked very, very hard. And so the 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 imagery of the time was that people who were happy were people who had power and money. I mean, they were able to escape that grind that was that trapped the peasant class. And, and so you can see slowly how Mary and could mean both mighty or great and happy. And so when you sing that song, you probably should substitute mighty for merry. Now, rest also had different meanings in Great Britain. And, and part of that is still seen in the legal system today when they rest a the case. They, you know, mm, they yeah. you know, it doesn't go to sleep. It ends. But rest meant make or keep as well. Okay. So we should be singing that song, God make you mighty gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ your Savior, 
was born on Christmas Day, and I signed all of my Christmas books, Mighty Christmas. Oh, I like that. I like that. You know, speaking of music, and one of the things that I almost seen completely disappear, and I used to do this as a kid, were uh, caroling. Yes. It used to happen quite often, and people would knock on your door, and you'd open it, and there'd be a little chorus of seven people singing, and it, I, it just couldn't have been any more delightful. Well, and I tell you what, it started with... with troubadours or whatever uh, groups in uh, in Europe who migrated from town to town. And during the Christmas season, they would they would sing carols on, stre- on street squares and things like that. And by the Victorian era of the mid to late 1800s in England, it was very common to see carolers, uh, bands of carolers come from churches or from local music groups. Music was such a big part of everyone's life. Almost everybody who was middle class or above had pianos. Everybody knew how to play pianos back then. And singing was something you did before radio, before television and things like that. You would get together with friends and sing. That was just an important part. So they took that singing outside. Mm -hmm. And caroling probably peaked in the 1930s and 40s. And and then then it it died down with the advent of of what we're doing right now, talking on radio. It died down further with with television. But you still see uh, a lot of caroling at places like shopping in downtown malls. And others, and so caroling ha- has benefited to a certain degree from the commercialization of Christmas. I think it would have possibly died out altogether. And I still see, I still have see on college campuses a lot of co- college students going out and caroling. But from a traditional standpoint, the United States that that tradition dates back to about the 1870s, and Great Britain about the 1860s. And before that, they were professionals who expected to be paid if they sang Christmas songs in the six, 17 and 1800s. Mm-hmm. Ace, uh, a listener said some uh, pagans talk about how the Christmas tree and wreaths were pagan. Uh, is it basically true? And is there some sort of return argument we can put forth? That was the oh, question. I will, t- I will tell you that almost every tradition we have outside of gifts, giving gifts obviously is the oldest Christmas tradition, had, had its roots in, in in some type of pagan culture, but the early missionaries were able to take uh, the meanings and beliefs of those people that they were comfortable with and, and turn them in, as we discussed as we discussed last week with mistletoe, into tracks that they could teach thing teach people with and 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 trees though get kind of a bad name in this regard because even in the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries. Uh, churches were bringing trees inside and having pl- children's plays around them. Now, the tree was not a Christmas tree back then. The tree was the creation tree, and they would have kids playing Adam and Eve and things like that. Okay. And, and so th- they were able to tell the original biblical stories using trees that were brought inside. They were called creation trees. Okay. And, and they were already converting back then because the, the the ancient Egyptians and others had various things that they dealt with on trees that— Sure, were a part of different celebrations that were pagan celebrations. In the 1500s, about the same time that there was a that a lot of Europe was converted into Christianity, Northern Europe, uh, various uh, missionaries, Boniface being one of them, actually uh, explained the Trinity using the triangular shape of the Christmas tree. They had. So, they did everlasting life explaining through the green that never faded in the wintertime as the mm. other trees lost their leaves. This did not as everlasting life. And they began to tell the story that way. And so the Christmas 
tree that was outside long before it was brought in was used as a track to explain faith. Oh, cool. And, and, and for people who didn't read, for people who were visually oriented and story oriented, it, and it, this helped lead people to Christ and it le- away from the pagan cu- customs. In mm. Latvia, in the 1500s, uh, evergreens were first brought inside to use during the Christmas season to remind people of the everlasting life that was afforded through uh, belief in, in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, re- reminding people that that came you know, first on Christmas Day. And they were actually hung upside down from the ceiling. I've always found this amusing because if you ever had a live tree, you always have everybody telling you how to get it straight. <laughs> and I'm imagining yeah. some guy on a stepladder <laughs> trying to nail a tree to a beam yeah. in the ceiling and having people, you really need it over another foot. Yeah. You know, if you, about 50 years, 50 years later, it was turned right side up. And not long after that, Martin Luther tied a candle to a tree, uh, lit the candle, and told his children that that, that candle represented the light that came into the world when Jesus was born. Hmm. And lights, therefore, on trees became very, very important. Um, Fortunately, eventually, right here in the United States in the late 1800s, one of Edison's um, top men uh, invented lights that replaced candles. And by the early 1900s, uh, candles had been totally replaced in this country and then started across the world with the advent of a cheap string of lights. And by the way, if you had a tree in the 1920s, 30s, or 40s, you were really well off if you had three strands of lights that had seven bulbs apiece on them. <laughs> so 21 lights was about the most you could get on a tree back then yeah. that most people could afford. And those 21 lights meant a whole lot wow. to those people. Wow. We're going to take a little break. Ace Collins is our guest. We're talking about the stories behind the great traditions of Christmas and the stories behind some of the great songs of Christmas. If you have a request, whether it be a song or a tradition about Christmas, you can send it over via text 877-933-2484, and we'll get Ace to give us a background of that tradition or that song. Again, the number is 877-933-2484. You've probably heard me talk about hope quite a bit this season, and I think it's because we need to hear more about it. We need to encourage one another with hope. We need to build one another up with the hope that we have in Christ. And if you are feeling lonely, or maybe you are having periods of disappointment or despair, and you need hope, we want you to know that you can always come to God's Word for hope. Hope will always be there for you waiting. And if you are struggling to make it to the next moment, I want you to be able to text the word HOPE to 877-933-2484. I'm back with Ace Collins. Always grateful to get him this time of the year because his phone doesn't stop ringing because he has so many interview opportunities. He's written about 12 books or about Christmas, and as a follower of Jesus, he loves to mine the stories behind the, the best-loved songs of Christmas and, the, and the, the traditions of Christmas to find out what the applications can be that we can be fully informed as believers ourselves. Uh, one that came in just right now, Ace, is there 
Uh, question is, is there anything Christian about St. Nicholas? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, let me go back before I answer, uh, go into the DNA of Santa Claus, if I can. Before I do that, you know, the question earlier that we had about pagan, you know, pagan roots with Christmas trees. Yes. And others, and I, I said most of the traditions we have had pagan origin, origins, if you will. And one of the things for people who are uncomfortable with that, I, I want to make this point. All of us have pagan organ origins too, until we accepted Jesus as our Savior. Right, very and, excellent and point. God didn't throw us out of the church or out of Christianity because we began our lives with a different set of beliefs or had not gotten enlightened and 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 figured out who Jesus was. He accepted us, and so converting traditions into Christian traditions. It goes right along with converting pagans into believers, and so, so don't sell, don't throw things out the window that once had one connotation to them, and then they were changed when when Christians looked at these traditions through the eyes of faith, and and adapted it into into their belief system and into their holiday traditions. So it is perfectly all right to change, and those things that had pagan roots into Christian traditions that we embrace and we love. Excellent. When it comes to Saint, when it comes to Saint Nicholas, Nicholas okay. of Bia was uh, a bishop and later a cardinal uh, in the early church uh, in an area that we now know as Turkey. Uh, he came from a wealthy family before he uh, it's became a clergyman, a priest. He sold everything he had and gave it to the poor, and then. He would spend the rest of his uh, pastorate, if you will, his missionary work, uh, finding people who were poor and leaving money for them in stockings at, by their fireplace or outside their door um, so that they could do things like buy, have dowries for their, for their children to be married and, and not starve to death. He was particularly fond of children and helped them out a great deal. And so if you go back 1,700 years, there's the roots of Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. And so, but let's take it a step further. King Wenceslas, which we sing about, was actually a duke in Bohemia about several centuries later. He also went out on Christmas Eve distributing to the poorest of the poor in his area with firewood, food, clothing, and gifts for children. These are the two men, both strong Christians, both people who believed in living out Matthew 25, 35 through 40, reaching out to the least of these with gifts and love and acceptance, that is, those are the origins of Santa Claus or Father Christmas okay. uh, or St. Nicholas. And so when you think about it, Santa's DNA has Christianity imprinted on it for at least 1,700 years. And, and so... From that, from those two legendary figures, sprang the Santa Claus that now you see um, in grocery stores and everything else. And a little bit of other trivia: up until the last hundred years or so, Santa could be tall and skinny and wearing a green coat. He could be short like an elf and wearing a brown coat. He had all kinds of different hats, all kinds of different looks. And then a guy named Hayden Sunbloom, who was an artist. Uh, who uh, was used by Coca-Cola developed the Santa Claus with the white beard, the red coat, and the and the and the kind of large body with the with the red cheeks and the 
and the big smile. And so our Santa Claus today actually owes its its universal uh, look around the world to Coca-Cola advertisements. <laughs> that is <laughs> very interesting. Thank you for that, Ace Collins. If you have, have a question about a tradition of Christmas or the story behind one of your favorite Christmas songs, you can text the question over to 877-933-2484. You know, one song, uh, Ace, I always kind of touches my heart is I'll Be Home for Christmas. What was that song about? Yeah, you know, we could actually talk the rest of the show about this song because it has a very, very interesting story that almost ended up in court, by the way. Uh, A man who, uh, in the 1930s, who was missing his high school sweetheart, he was at college, wrote, wrote home a letter to her, her, assuring her he would be home for the holidays and was looking forward to seeing her. Uh, that developed into an idea that he had for a song. He didn't finish the song. Two other songwriters came up and, and got a hold of his idea that were friends of his and finished the song. And they didn't give him credit. And so there was actually a little lawsuit that went on about who's got credit. And you'll actually see all three of the names on it now. Oh, wow. So it was, a, it was born with a kid who was homesick for home and his girlfriend. But the song was not finished until World War II had already started. Bing Crosby was looking for a uh, follow-up for his 1942 hit, White Christmas. And so 1943, uh, he found, it was pitched to him, uh, I'll Be Home for Christmas, which is only 12 lines long, by the way. It's it's not a long song at all. And it was the perfect song to release in World War II. Um, and because... There were millions who were separated from families. I mean, there were millions of places that were empty at the table. Uh, some of them would be empty forever. And and this song provided what I refer to as a secular prayer. And I think all three of the great secular hits from World War II, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, 1944, this song, 1943, and White Christmas in 1942. If you If you listen to them closely, they're all secular prayers. They're, they're praying for a time when people come back together, when families are once more united, when Christmas is once, once, once more normal. And, and I think that's why they're, they lasted, because of when they were released. Being released in the midst of a war where we were unsure of what the future was meant, made these songs mean so very, very much more. Um, anyway, uh, I'll Be Home for Christmas became Bing Crosby's third number one Christmas song. Mm-hmm. And it followed the huge hit of White Christmas and Bing's version of White Christmas has sold more records than any other Christmas song of all time. Mariah Carey gets a lot of the play right now for her song, but no one has sold more records than Bing Crosby's White yeah. Christmas. Ace, who uh, of the old crooners, who is your favorite voice? Gosh, you know, I, I, I at Not Christmas, fair. yeah, I got Christmas, you've got to say. You, you can't have Christmas without being crossed. <laughs> kind I mean, of agree. You know, I've always said that Christmas is is one. If you have a Christmas hit, a big Christmas hit, and you only get a big Christmas hit about once every 10, 10 years yeah. usually. But if you have a big Christmas hit, you become immortal. Oh, no Because question. that song comes back each and every time. Uh, so I, I think Crosby's probably number one, but not far behind would be voices that people only think of with Christmas now, like, like Perry Como sure. or... Nat King Cole, yes, Christmas. yeah, and so those three of the you know the crooner era was the '40s and early '50s. Those three crooners are probably uh, three of the most. I also think 
in spite of her incredibly troubled life and 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 all of that she went through and and the way that the Hollywood system abused her, which led to her later problems, Judy Garland's uh, "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas" in my mind is one of the greatest Christmas songs ever recorded. Little little do people know that she would not record it. It was for the uh, movie Meet Me in St. Louis until the songwriters had changed the lyrics because the lyrics were really downcast about never seeing someone again. And Judy thought that that message, while it worked in the movie, would be horrible for a World War II audience to hear. And she, they, she had them change the lyrics before she would record it to a more upbeat, hopeful song, a song where people would get back together again. Ooh, I, and, think, I think she had good instincts. Yeah, and it was great instincts. And yeah. and she had only had like 13 or 14 chart songs in her life, but two of them were were remain popular today, you know, from The Wizard of Oz, you know, uh, Oh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and of course this song, uh, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas Boy. Both yeah. of them are just powerful testaments to touching heartstrings and and continue to touch heartstrings to this day. But yeah, the crooners, those three, you know, I, I really like the Carpenters. I really like Elvis. I mean, you know, I like, you know, I like a lot of them, of the, of the acts from the fifties, sixties and seventies as well. Uh, and getting up to Amy Grant in mm -hmm. the eighties and nineties. So I, I, mine go all over the place. I even like a lot of the 1950s, uh, doo-wop groups that created some Christmas songs as well. Well, yeah, you've got a, quite a wide variety of taste. Ace Collins is my guest, and if you've got like a decorative Christmas plate that you put cookies on and you put that on the table, right next to that should be one of Ace's books about Christmas, whether it's the stories behind the great traditions of Christmas or the stories behind the great songs of Christmas. Uh, you'll always find a great uh, biblical uh, story behind everyone, or you'll find something that can connect to a spiritual conversation, and you'll be glad you have it as part of your uh, your christmas uh, gear that you bring out every year we're gonna take a break and we come back i want to ask ace about the history of the song a holy night when we come back we'll be right back it's the afternoon show with bill arno drive time drive time let's get it started so glad to have Ace Collins today talking about the traditions of stories behind the great traditions of Christmas and stories behind the great songs of Christmas. If you have a request, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. Ace, let's hear about uh, All Holy Night. Holy Night has several good, great stories that are attached to it. I mean, it's one of the few songs along with Silent Night that's ever stopped a war. Um, Holy Night goes back about 100 years. Um, excuse me, about 200 years, about two centuries. Uh, in France, a local parish priest asked one of his uh, congregation to write a poem for the Christmas Eve service. Uh, on the way to Paris, riding in a carriage, this man wrote, in French, naturally, because he was French, A Holy Night. Uh, he liked the poem so much, he took it to a friend of his who wrote operas. And he asked this friend if he would write music for this poem. The friend wanted to turn him down. He said, no, no, it's a beautiful poem, but I don't feel like I'm the person to write this. 
he foresaw some issues if he wrote it. And the priest, I mean, the the guy who wrote the poem, who was a commissioner of wine, must have had quite a bit of power because he basically forced the guy to write music to it. And it was performed at that church and within 10 years had spread all across France as France's favorite Christmas carol. Um, and then, and this will surprise a lot of people who are listening, it was actually kicked out of the Catholic Church for being too secular. Wow. Now, if you've ever listened to Holy Night, you're wondering what was secular about it. Mm -hmm. Well, what happened was they found out that the man who wrote the mu music was actually Jewish. And they decided they didn't want a Jewish person writing Christmas music. The church didn't and kicked it out. Well, it, that didn't mean the French people didn't still love the song and they kept singing it. And eventually it made its way across Europe and to Great Britain. But it didn't come to the United States as a Christmas song. It came to the United States uh, brought to the U.S. by abolitionists because in the third verse it says, the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. It was a song that included the word chains and all of this. And it was so the abolitionists used it as a way to fire people up to free slaves in the South. And, and so during the Civil War, you'd have heard it sung by people from the Union uh, fighting the Confederacy. After the war, after the Civil War was over and the Union won, it became an important Christmas song in the United States. Let's go for forward another decade or so. Franco-Prussian War. There's fighting on Christmas Eve, and one of the Frenchmen had just gotten tired of it and jumped out of his foxhole and started singing Oh Holy Night, and it literally became the song that brought peace on earth because the two sides, long before World War II, when when the song was sung again as an answer to Silent Night, but it, it stopped a war for 24 hours, and the two sides got together and celebrated Christmas and sang carols and and had peace on earth for at least 24 hours. So that song initiated that. Then if you go to 1906, a man named Fessenden was, uh, had worked for Marconi and was trying to do something that everybody said was impossible. He was trying to create a an amplifier, a, a transmitter, if you will, that could transmit the human voice. Up until that time, you had to transmit Morse code wirelessly, but there was not a transmitter that could wirelessly transmit the human voice. In 1906 on Christmas Eve, he decided to try his invention out. And people who were living up and down the East Coast in newsrooms monitoring the Morse code on their little speakers uh, or in ships at sea or railroad stations suddenly heard his voice come over the air. And this, they've been told this was impossible. So this had to just totally freak them out. Everything had to stop. People were probably yelling at people, you got to come in here and hear this. And this guy read the second chapter of Luke and then picked up a violin. And the very first song ever played on the radio was Oh Holy Night. And that is how music has been introduced ever since over the radio. So isn't it amazing that the very first song that was ever heard by people on a radio was this Christmas standard, Oh Holy Night, which already had three great stories about it. And this became the fourth great story about this song and how historic it is and how it has shaped everything from wars to the freeing of slaves to faith. Yeah, just a spectacular, yeah, spectacular story. Again, uh, can you imagine the, the shock that these um, Morse code operators would have been experiencing that night? 
I, I, you know, as you think about it, no, I couldn't. Yeah. And, and, you know, to this day, you know, it would, I don't know that we've got anything in our modern world that could compare to it. Uh, you know, the world would have stopped in these places and they would have hollered at everybody, you got to come hear this. <laughs> no doubt. I mean, you know, this would have been a Christmas Eve like they belie- couldn't believe. I'm sure, you know, he got press coverage everywhere that not long after that because he had done the impossible in people's minds with this invention. But for that night, before there was press coverage, you've got to know that these Morse code operators were transporting more, transmitting Morse code, talking about this to everybody all over the country. Yeah. Ace Collins is my guest. We're talking about stories behind the great traditions of Christmas and about stories behind the great songs of Christmas. So if you have a tradition or a story you'd like more information on, let me know. Text it over to me, 877-933-2484. Ace, where did we get the tradition of sending each other Christmas cards. Oh, it goes back to um, about 140 years, 100, no, 160 years. Uh, a man named Cole in in Great Britain, a man who worked for Queen, Queen Victoria, was a very busy man. And it was considered in Victorian England impolite if you didn't answer mail. And he had all this mail stack up around the Christmas season. He didn't have time to answer it. He found a painting of a British family enjoying a Christmas goose for uh, gathered around the table. And so you had all of the signs of Christmas dinner, and he actually had Mm. that uh, reproduced into about a thousand cards. Wow. (laughs) And had a Christmas verse on the inside and signed each one and mailed them, had his secretary mail them out so that he did answer all the mail he had been given. Okay. Those were the first Christmas cards. And the next year, a lot of people went to that same printer and ordered that same card again that he had had made with the same verse in it and sent it out. And from there, that is the tradition of Christmas cards uh, across Great Britain. By the 1870s, with the advent of dependable mail in the United States and also cheap postage, I mean, you could mail a Christmas card for a penny and uh Printing presses were operating, and, and, and the press the presses had developed so much they could do color printing and other things cheaply. Uh, a Christmas card was something that was sent out, could be sent out by even people who were lower middle class. And so it became a very important tradition in many communities, and, and it was a way, don't forget, everybody wrote letters back then to stay in touch. It was a way to send out a personal greeting during the holiday season with notes on it, talking about what you had done that year. So for people you didn't write on a regular basis, it was a way to keep them up on your lives. Um, my grandmother, by the way, who lived in North Arkansas, was a was a woman who probably didn't know anybody who wasn't Christian. And so she kept all of her Christmas cards. And I went back through those cards that day back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And you would be surprised that very few of them had Merry Christmas. Uh, very few of them actually had manger scenes and things like that. The Christians back then in that era were sending out some religious cards, but most of them said happy holidays or season greetings. Oh, wow. Why did they say that? It wasn't an affront to Christianity. There were Christians. They were saying that because they were mailing out a card that was was supposed to cover Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. Yeah, they're just covering the bases. They were covering all the bases because, you know, the time it got there, you were probably just Thanksgiving was just over. Christmas was about to start. And so they were basically, this was the holiday season in the United States, particularly after they moved Thanksgiving back a week during World War II, moved it forward a week during World War II and kept it there. It was a time 
for six weeks when there were holidays, basically. Mm-hmm. And so happy holidays was the most common greeting card I saw in those stacks along with season's greetings. And, and so it's easy. It's interesting when you go back that and look at those cards from those eras, how few of them say Merry Christmas. Yeah. All right, Ace, I'm going to take a little break. Ace Collins is my guest. You can learn more about Ace at his website, acecollins.com. He's written at least a dozen books on the traditions of uh, Christmas. We're chatting today about some of the best love songs of Christmas and some of the traditions of Christmas. And if you have a question or comment, let me know, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back with Ace in a minute. We want to pray for you. We all need prayer. We would love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer, and we pray for specific listener requests every week. Share your prayer requests with us anonymously and securely on our website at myfaithradio.com. Welcome to the show. If you just joined me, hope you've had a good day. I'm talking to Ace Collins. We're chatting about the stories behind the best-loved songs of Christmas and the, and the traditions of Christmas. And right before the break, Ace, we were talking about the, the expression season's greetings because if people were going to take the time and energy to send a card out, they had to cover all their bases. So this mm-hmm. would be Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and um, no person was offended by the saying no. season's greetings. Let's just talk about the season for a second. This is a, a rich evangelistic season because it lasts for a long time. I mean, I think that's one of the great one of the greatest gifts we've been given uh, in our modern world. We were probably given about 1840 when with the poem "A Visit from Saint Nick," which we know is the night before Christmas, was ironically written by a, a preacher who was tired of the American Christmas, which meant that church most churches didn't meet on Christmas Eve, they didn't celebrate Christmas. The government continued to function on Christmas Day unless it happened to be on a Sunday. Most stores were open. America just pretty much ignored Christmas unless you were a Catholic or a Lutheran and had those Eastern European roots. And so when when that poem was printed in the United States, within 20 years, America's businesses had figured out you could really make this a commercial holiday. Mm-hmm. And when it did, it also opened up. Uh, Protestant churches across the United States opening their doors, having Christmas programs and everything else, and Congress quit meeting on Christmas Day. So it really became a great holiday in America uh, just before the Civil War, and really expanded after the Civil War. And so Christmas was is really kind of a modern holiday for most uh, Americans. Uh, other than before that, it was kind of a hard, a holiday like Mardi Gras. A lot of people drank, and that's why churches ignored it. Uh, but when it became this incredible holiday for children, uh, it became commercial. And and people have been trying to beat that down ever since. But because of the commercialization of Christmas, it is Christmas all over the world. I mean, it's Christmas in Asia. It's Christmas in Japan. It's Christmas throughout Europe. It's Christmas in places where a majority of the people are not Christians, which opens the door for five or six weeks for us to really talk about Christmas. And people... I'm aware of of what Christmas is. You know, what does Christmas mean? Worship Christ. You know, you can translate that. You know, you can sit there and translate and start talking about where the traditions came from. And it it's much more than any other time of the year. It opens the us us 
it opens up an opportunity if it's approached right uh, and don't get militant about it, but be gentle about it and, be, and and educational about it. It opens up the door for us to share the gospel. And Easter doesn't do that because Easter is still a Christian holiday. It's never really been successfully commercialized. Um, but Christmas, it's Christmas all over the world. And the commercialization right. of Christmas may be one of the greatest gifts from an evangelical spreading the gospel standpoint that Christians have been getting, ever given. So rather than rail against it, man, we need to embrace this gift and figure out ways to use it to share our faith. Mm -hmm. Ace Collins is my guest. We're talking about the traditions of Christmas and the stories behind the best love songs of Christmas. Here's a question uh, for you, Ace. As a Christian, if somebody sends me a note and and puts down Merry Xmas, should I be offended? Ah, realistically speaking, offending by Xmas is a modern thing. I mean, the Christ, the Christian Church wrote Xmas for the first thousand years of the church. They did it because one, ink and paper were expensive, and two, X represented Christ in the to the early church. Anyway, if 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 Paul or or Timothy saw Xmas, they would immediately say, uh, "Worship Christ." They wouldn't be offended by it. So, uh, so for the first thousand years, the church was doing it. Uh, then, when ink and ink became less expensive, and people learned how to read. By the way, early Christians, when they were asked to list their faith on a document, would write an X if they were a Christian. Uh, and there were many more X's over doors that stood for stood for Christianity than there were fish symbols. So, early symbol of Christ, X, Y, first letter of Christ's name in the Greek alphabet. And so that, that Kai, uh, really represented Christmas for, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So if you actually know that, you can actually turn it to your advantage and you can tell somebody who might be trying to push Christmas, you know, Christ out of Christmas. Hey, do you realize that you're writing it just the same? You know, Paul and Timothy would have recognized that and you're writing it the way the church wrote it for a thousand years, <laughs> you know? And, and so you're opening up an opportunity once again for sharing your faith. And, and so rather than getting militant about it or upset about it, you can turn it on its ears if somebody is trying to use it to push Christ out of Christmas. I talked about my grandmother's Christmas cards early on. A lot of those cards from the 30s, 40s, and early 50s, the 51 was the last car group of cards I had from her, have Xmas on them too. And back then, every one of them would have been sent to my grandmother by somebody who went to church on a regular basis and was a Christian. So, you know, that Xmas thing is is something that has happened in the last generation or two. And I think if we know the fact that was the way it was written for a thousand years, and X stands for Kai, the first name, and that's how early Christians referred to Jesus, I, I think that... Um, we can turn that on its ear and take it, take advantage of it rather than being upset by it. Mm -hmm. Ace, uh, talk about angels and how they are involved in the Christmas story. I, okay, we I, talked, we talked, talked about gifts being the oldest Christmas tradition. Yeah, I can honestly tell you that angels may be older than gifts because they came, <laughs> to, they came before the gifts did, right? To announce the birth of Christ. I mean, the gifts, the gifts got there what? a year, year and a half after Christ was born. I mean, you know, the wise men finally tracked Jesus down uh, in Egypt. But I mean, you know, the uh, the angels appeared. They were the trumpeters. They were the, uh, you know, they were the, hey, um, you know, you, you've heard many times on radio or on television, you know, news break in, you know, important announcement. Well, that's what the angels did. And and, and you could also say Velkin because that means heavenly host. And, and, and so, uh, 
you'd be surprised that Hark the Herald Angels Ring was actually written uh, as Hark the Heavenly Velkin Sing. Oh, wow. That <laughs> because, doesn't have quite the ring to it, but I like no, it. No, and that's why it was changed when it was printed after about 20 years of being Velkin. <laughs> Evidently, even back then, people didn't know what Velkin was. And so they, angels became more, impor- more important. But Heavenly Host and Velkin and angels are two different things. But the angels were there you know, before Jesus was born. They were there when Jesus was born. They became uh, the trumpeters, if you will, announcing the birth of Christ. And if you look around you, angels are everywhere, on top of trees, they're on cards, they're, and they need to be, uh, because they were central in in hearkening, go back to hearken here, hearkening the birth of a Savior, announcing what was going to happen, and then celebrate. they were the first to celebrate that birth uh as well. And so there's a lot of joy there when it comes to angels. They're the oldest symbols of this holiday. Oh, that's spectacular. It's so interesting. I love all, I well, love well, all. even older than the star itself. They're, you know, they predate the star. Yeah. 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 Can you imagine imagine them that night uh appearing yeah. to the shepherds? Um yeah. what a what a scene that must have been. Well, well I wish we had wish we had video. Oh, yeah. We'll hopefully be able to see it later in heaven. Um, so, Ace, I know we just have about a minute left, and you've been so gracious uh, every year since I've been here at Faith Radio to to give me one or two hours because these stories are just so fascinating. And I know not only do I love them, but I, I know the listeners love them, and I get lots of comments. And I just want to wrap up our time today. Um, for those who maybe missed the first time you were on last week, is just to, again, extend my sympathy uh, to the passing of your dear wife, Kathy, just about a month ago. And this will be, of course, the first Christmas you will be spending with her in heaven and you still here on earth. Yeah, and it's going to be the most, it's going to be the most difficult Christmas I've ever faced. There's no doubt about that. I know. But in spite of all of that, uh, she, she would want me to seek out joy and mostly to share the spirit of this season with others. And so... Uh, in an attempt to carry on, I will do that. Amen. You know, uh, and so we will do that. And and for all those listening today, have not just a happy Christmas, have not just a merry Christmas, have a mighty Christmas, have a powerful Christmas, and embrace the season of light with everything you have where people don't even have to hear you talk about uh, your belief and your faith. They can see it written in your eyes. Amen. And what is the best sermon in the, in the world? It's how you live. Amen. And, that- That's our show for the night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.